One of my favorite things to do is to spend unhurried time browsing used bookstores. I love wandering around all the different sections, uh, looking through what they've got in the fiction, seeing what unique editions they have of, of my favorite authors. Then I wander over to history, poetry, music, travel. I, I just love looking through all of it. And as a pastor, of, of course, I inevitably find my way over to the Christian section. Now, the Christian section in a, a used bookstore, is a, it's a very fascinating place to me. Uh, I often wonder as I'm looking through the, the books on those shelves if, if the employees knew what they were doing when they organized those shelves. Because while some of those books certainly belong there, I always come across books and titles and authors that I fear made it into the Christian section simply because it had the word Christian somewhere on the cover. It leaves me wondering, are, are these shelves really full of truth? If I just grab any, any book in the Christian section, will it make me a more faithful follower of Jesus? And more than that, what's the criteria we should be, we should be using for determining whether something is actually Christian? How do we decide what's right from wrong, for the fact from fiction? Who, who's the authority here? In an age inundated by fake news and misleading information presented as truth, is certainty about the truth even possible? With so many voices telling us who and what to believe, who should we be listening to? I mean, just, just think about what you and I are about to spend the next 40 minutes approximately or so. Don't hold me to that number. Just think about what we're about to do for the next few minutes. If I do my job right, I'm going to spend the next few minutes of your life explaining nine verses to you from a letter written by a guy who died almost 2,000 years ago. And I'm going to make the main point of what he said, the, the main point of what I say. And then I'm going to attempt to apply all of that to your life and to the life of our church. And along the way, I'm going to say crazy things like, God says in his word this. On what basis can I say that? And on what basis should you believe me? Perhaps the Bible, like so many of those, those books that I come across in the Christian section of the bookstore, perhaps it's been just misplaced by those poor, unsus unsuspecting bookstore employees. Maybe it, maybe it really belongs next to Harry Potter in the fiction section. I mean, how, how can we be so certain that the Bible isn't just filled with all the stuff of fairy tales and fake news? Why should we pay any attention to it? Well, to help us answer these questions, I want us to turn back in our Bibles to the little letter of 2 Peter. We're going to be looking at, at chapter 1, verses 12 to, to 21. I don't know what page it is on the Pew Bible in front of you. Someone just yell at me and tell me what page number it's on in that black. What is it? 1079. It's on page 1079 of that chair Bible in front of you. So last week, Dick, Dick got us started with the, the first 11 verses. And in those, those verses, we saw that the author, the apostle Peter, was writing this letter likely from a prison cell in Rome just before his, his execution. And he was writing to these young Christian 
congregations across Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, to encourage them uh, to confirm their calling and election by pursuing a godly life. That's what he says in verse 10. And so he, he reminds them in verses 3 to 4 that God had called them by his divine power and grace and given them everything that they needed for life and godliness. And, and then in verses 5 to 11, he tells them to, to go and live out that salvation by growing in the qualities of, of faith, goodness, knowledge, self-control, endurance, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. That's, that's the, the list of these qualities that he gives in verses 5 to 7. And we saw that the reason Peter starts his letter this way is because these young churches had been infested with false teachers who were teaching that, that Jesus Christ wasn't coming back, and therefore it didn't matter how they lived. They were abusing the truths of, of the gospel, saying that, that Christians essentially were free to indulge their sexual desires because they'd been given God's grace. And so Peter writes this letter to, to warn these churches about these false teachers and, and to strengthen their confidence in the certainty of their own calling and the certainty and, and the truth of God's word and, and in the fact that Jesus Christ would one day return to judge the living and the dead. So let's pick up the letter in, in chapter 1. We're going to read verses 12 to 21. Therefore, I, always, I will always remind you about these things, even though you know them and are established in the truth you now have. I think it is right, as long as I am in this bodily tent, to wake you up with a reminder, since I know that I will soon lay aside my tent, as our Lord Jesus Christ has indeed made clear to me. And I will also make every effort so that you are able to recall these things at any time after my departure. For we did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. We also have the prophetic word strongly confirmed. And you will do well to pay attention to it as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you know this. No prophecy of scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, this is God's holy and inspired word. Let me pray. Father, we pray that you would give us ears right now to pay attention to what you have said to us in this word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Here's what I think the main idea of this passage is. God has confirmed his word through the coming of his son. So pay attention to it as you await the day of Christ's return. God has confirmed his word through the coming of his son. So pay attention to it as you await Christ's return. And we see this first as Peter, Peter urges these Christians to remember and to act on his instructions as he 
nears his death. That's what he does in verses 12 to 15. And then he gives these Christians two reasons why they should trust his words as authoritative. That's what he does in verses 16 to 21. So two points to the sermon this morning. Point number one, a constant reminder. A constant reminder. That's what we'll see in verses 12 to 15. And then point number two, a confirmed testimony. A confirmed testimony. That's verses 16 to 21. So let's look at that first point, a constant reminder. A constant reminder. So in verses 12 to 15, Peter has has one basic point to remind believers to to keep pursuing a virtuous life as a result of their new life in Christ. And he does this so so that they would receive entry into the eternal kingdom of Christ on the day of his return. That's what That's what he just finished saying in in verse 11. And what the very first word in verse 12, the word therefore, points us back to. So it's the eternal future that he talks about in verse 11 uh, of these Christians that frames everything that Peter's about to say in uh, in these verses. And so what what are these things he refers to in verses 12 and and 15? Well, it's everything that he, he already told them about the gospel in verses 3 to 11, and especially, especially those qualities he listed back in verses 5 to 7. And the fact, that, the fact that these people already knew all of these things, he says, and, and were established in them didn't stop Peter from, from needing to remind them about these things. But the question we've got to ask here is why? If if they already possess the realities of the gospel, why does Peter feel this overwhelming need to remind them of these things? And not just once or twice, but always, he says there in verse 12. Well, he he tells us the answer to this in verses 13 and 14. He knows he's about to die. And so he feels compelled as long as he's got breath in his lungs to remind these saints to, to keep the faith. He doesn't want them to be, to be swayed by, uh, by the trash theology that these false teachers are, are trying to sell them on. He wants them to remain in the truth that they've already heard and received from him and the other apostles, which is one of the reasons that Peter connects himself to the Lord Jesus Christ there in verse 14. So there we we probably have a reference to the conversation that Peter has with Jesus in John 21, 18 to 19, where where Jesus informs Peter that his hands would be stretched out in a way that he he did not choose, likely alluding to his crucifixion that he would suffer at the hands of the Roman emperor Nero. So Peter's, Peter's tying his words here, his words in verse verses 12 to 15, to the the very words of Jesus, to substantiate not only the claim that that he's going to die soon, but also that he's a genuine apostle whose teachings are in line with Jesus Christ. But his emphasis here is, is really on making these gospel reminders as his death draws near, which which the word tent in verses 13 and 14 signals. So the word tent points to the weakness and the temporal nature of his body. 
Paul, Paul, the Apostle Paul is going to use the same comparison in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So Peter, Peter can feel death's cold breath on the back of his neck. It's creeping just around the corner. He knows his time is almost up, and he can feel it in his bones. But instead of making him passive in his ministry, this makes him all the more burdened for these Christians. In fact, it's, it's the prospect of his passing that fuels his passion to stir these Christians to action so that they will endure in the truth long after he's gone. Brothers and sisters, this, this should encourage you. This should encourage us as we, as we all face the prospect of our own death one day. You may feel like your best years are behind you now. Like you don't have much left in the tank. You, you may too right now feel, feel that death is coming for you in your bones. Let Peter be an example to you. Let Peter be an example to you. Just listen again to how alive Peter sounds even in the face of his own impending death. Therefore, I always remind you. I think it right as long as I am in this bodily tent to wake you up with a reminder since I know that I will soon lay aside my tent. I will make every effort so that you will be able to recall these things anytime after my departure. These are not the words of a man coasting to the finish line. These are the words of a man sprinting toward the tape, calling fellow believers to keep up the pace with him. I can think of dear saints in my life, now departed and with the Lord, who as they neared the finish line, spent their final breaths encouraging me to keep running with them. I think of a dear saint at, at our previous church who, who just three weeks before stomach cancer would cause her to lay aside her bodily tent, was stirring me up to greater faithfulness in Jesus as, as my wife and I sat in her living room. Her body confined to a chair, but her heart burdens to remind us the hope of the gospel. Many of you right now, I'm, I'm sure, are thinking of our dear sister, Jamie Phillips, who did not stop preaching the promises of the gospel to us, even in the end. As long as she was in her bodily tent, she thought it right to wake us up with these gospel reminders, didn't she? Brothers and sisters, I wonder if this describes you. You may not feel death hot on your heels the way Peter does, but don't forget why Peter feels so compelled to remind these saints in the first place. Those false teachers had crept into the community. And they were trying to sway these young Christians away from the truth. And their endurance was literally a matter of life and death. Eternity was at stake. We should feel the same sense of urgency. Do you? Do you feel that, 
that same kind of love and care and concern for your brothers and sisters in Christ, the ones who are sitting next to you right now, do you feel burdened that they would endure to the end? That they would not trade in the truth of the gospel for a lie? Because we, we all need these gospel reminders, don't we? Though we are established in the truth of the gospel, there's a sense in which we must relearn the gospel every single day. By God's grace, Christ saved me 22 years ago this summer. And you know what? Every day for the last 22 years, I have needed God's word and God's people to remind me of that. Peter knows his people, even though they possess the gospel, will be tempted to forget it as the pressures of the world and the passions of their flesh flare up. And he knows this because he too was tempted to forget the gospel at times. It happened to him when he denied Jesus three times on the night of his arrest. And it happened to him when Paul had to, to call him out for acting hypocritically with those Gentile believers in Galatians 2. The point is, we are all gospel amnesiacs. We forget to take hold of the infinite glory of Christ that has come to us in the gospel. I'm not talking about forgetting the all the doctrine of the gospel, all the parts and pieces of it. I'm talking about forgetting to apply its promises, about forgetting to delight afresh and anew in all that we possess because of the gospel. Apparently, some Taylor Swift fans, after, maybe this, this may be you a week ago, I don't know, Apparently, some Taylor Swift fans, after attending her Eras show, are, are claiming to suffer from, from post-concert amnesia. Post-concert amnesia. I, it sounds ridiculous and unbelievable, but apparently these Swifties are so overwhelmed. They're so overwhelmed by the emotion and the spectacle of the show that when it's over, they go home and they cannot remember a thing about it. What, what should be an unforgettable night becomes something they, in the end, have no memory of. And we laugh and we snicker at that, but man, how many of us, how many of us claim to have been transformed by the power and the glory of the gospel, and yet every day we live like we have no memory of? Peter doesn't want that to happen to these believers. And so he's, he's putting the smelling salts of the gospel under their noses so that it will wake them up and keep them alert to the truth after he's gone. We need to do the same for one another. At the heart of all of our ministry to one another is helping one another stay awake to the glory of the gospel. Your job as a church member is to help other church members remember what it means to follow Jesus as we wait for his return. That's it. That's your job. That's the job that you have for one another. So who are you helping? Who, who are you helping? What fellow gospel amnesiac are you, you helping to delight in and prize the gospel afresh? 
Who are you helping in this church to, to wake up to its beauty, to its glory, to its truth, to its transforming power? Whether you have been walking with Jesus for a long time or you just started, let the glory of the gospel today wash over you all over. You were once a sinner, an enemy of God, but now through the blood of Jesus Christ, you have been reconciled to him. Let that motivate you to greater holiness today, to grow in all of those gospel qualities described in verses five to seven. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. Friend, if that is you, we are so glad that you are here this morning. You do not need to just remember the gospel today. You need to submit to it. You need to believe it. You need to turn away from your rebellion against your creator, and you need to follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. When he took your place upon the cross because of your sin, he substituted himself in love, taking upon him himself the wrath of God against sinners like, like you and me. And one day, one day, just as we've been singing and reading about already this morning, King Jesus will return. He will come back. And then when he does, it will be in power and glory. And when that day arrives, the world will be destroyed, our works will be exposed, and those who have rejected him will be judged eternally. But for those who repent and follow him and submit to him as king, entrance into his eternal kingdom will be granted to us. Friend, this, this is the salvation that Peter is calling these Christians to remind. To, 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 to keep in mind, to remember. And this is the, the, the salvation, the gospel that God is calling you right now to submit to, to believe, to trust in. We all need this gospel. We all need this gospel and we all need to be reminded of it every day. But how can we be, how can we be certain that it's true? How can we be so certain how can we be so sure that this isn't all just some fantastical fairy tale? Well, this is where Peter takes us in the next verses. So point number two, a confirmed testimony. This is verses 16 to 21. So in these verses, uh, Peter gives us the reasons, the reasons that we should trust the gospel that he's calling us to to remember. And he does so by bringing kind of two pieces of irrefutable evidence into the courtroom, so to speak. So evidence number one is, is this eyewitness testimony of the apostles at Jesus's transfiguration. And evidence, piece, evidence number two is, is the prophetic words spoken by God in the Old Testament scriptures. So eyewitness testimony and authoritative documents uh, those were the two basic types of evidence needed in the ancient world, and really not much has changed today. If you want to prove your point in, in the court of law, you need eyewitness testimony or trustworthy sources, and Peter's got both of them. So in verses 16 to 18, Peter's going to turn our attention to, uh, to the transfiguration, the transfiguration, the event recorded for us in places like Matthew 17, Mark 7, Luke 9, when Jesus appeared before James, John, and Peter 
in radiant power and glory, and, and, and God the Father testified that Jesus was his son. So the main verb there in verse 16 uh, is we made known. And then that the we, that subject that he refers to in verses 16, 18, and 19, Peter's talking about the apostles generally there. So Peter's, Peter's not claiming that he personally established the churches addressed here. He, he's making the point that the church was established upon the tradition and the teachings of all the apostles. And the apostles were teaching the early Christians about the powerful coming, the return, the future return of, of Christ. Now, Peter's going to fill this out more for us a little later in the letter. But here we're, we're starting to see more clearly what and who Peter's opponents are denying. We're starting to see more clearly just what and who these false teachers are rejecting. And these false teachers, are they were rejecting the apostles' teaching about the day of the Lord. They were, they were maintaining that life would go on. Life's just going to go on as it always has, which, which made the, the need to pursue a godly life uh, optional at best. But really, it was just utterly pointless. What's the point if Jesus isn't coming back? This is why Peter says, says the apostles weren't following cleverly contrived myths when they declared the second coming of Christ to them. So apparently Peter's opponents were going around insisting that the, uh, the apostles' teaching about Christ's return was the stuff of, of just fake news and fairy tales, just a bunch of religious mumbo-jumbo and make-believe. And the only thing that you need to do with their teaching is ignore it. But Peter, Peter refutes that, insisting that the apostles weren't the ones trading in myths. Instead, they were eyewitnesses of Christ's majesty, he says. So do you, you remember uh, when LeBron James was just coming into the NBA? I don't know if I heard a groan or like an amen over here. Remember when, uh, when LeBron James was coming into the NBA, how, how Nike put out uh, their We Are All Witnesses campaign, right? You had that massive banner hanging in downtown Cleveland, uh, that that massive banner of LeBron with his arms open wide, looking up at those words, we are all witnesses. And it was supposed to, to pay tribute to how we as NBA fans across the world were all witnessing the greatness of LeBron as an NBA superstar. Well, that's what Peter's doing here. That's what Peter's doing here. He's, he's raising the banner of, of Christ's eternal greatness as the reigning and the returning king up high for everybody to see. But what in the world does Jesus' transfiguration have to do with his return? This, this seems like a strange way to, to try and make the point that Jesus is coming back. Well, Peter Peter wants us to see, just as he saw with his own eyes on that mountain, that, that the honor, the glory, the power given to Jesus at the transfiguration is meant, it's meant to point us to the honor, the glory, and the power that's going to be displayed at Christ's second coming. So that past historical event that Peter saw with his own eyes, the transfiguration, 
It anticipates. It's a prelude. It's a precursor to a later event in history that we are all going to see with our own eyes, the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's why Peter, that's why Peter's going to put the emphasis on the majesty, the honor, and the glory Jesus received from the Father at the transfiguration. Because the same majesty, the, the same honor, the same glory that made Peter fall on his face at the transfiguration, it's the same majesty, the same honor, the same glory that's going to make us fall on our faces when Christ returns. And it's the eyewitness character of the, this event. It's Peter's eyewitness character that proves Peter and the other apostles weren't daydreaming, weren't hallucinating, weren't hawking some mythical fairy tale as they taught about the return of Christ. It's as if Peter is saying, look, I may be an old man and I may be knocking on death's doorstop, but you need to believe me. I know what I saw and I know what I heard on that mountain. See, what Peter is doing right here it is so important. It's so important for us to understand when it comes to the certainty of the Christian faith. Peter is anchoring, he's grounding the teachings of the apostles in real, actual history. So unlike many today, we do not hear Peter saying here, you know, I, I just like to look at the world this way. Or I've just always felt like God is like this, right? None of this, none of what Peter is saying in these verses smacks of his subjective experience of the situation. No, he, he says, this really happened. We were all witnesses. I, I stood on that mountain and I watched Jesus get transfigured and I heard God declare Jesus to be his beloved son and I am just telling you like I saw it. I'm just telling you like it is. He's simply reporting what God himself said about Jesus. He's not giving, giving us his own interpretation of the event. God himself did that for him when his voice boomed from the heavens and said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That, that was how Peter was supposed to interpret it. God told him how to understand the situation. Peter saw what Christ's glory looked like on that mountain, and he knew that Jesus was way more than just some ordinary car carpenter or just some other religious guru. And when Christ returns, we will all come to that very same conclusion. Every human being, even if it's too late for some of us, will have the same encounter and the same experience, and we will all realize that ungodly living is inconsistent with the glory of Jesus Christ. That's, that is Peter's point, and it depends on history, on the evidence of eyewitness testimony. But there's a second piece of evidence that Peter brings into the courtroom. He brings the prophetic word, the prophetic word which he turns to in verses 19 and, and 21. So the prophetic word here refers uh, specifically to the prophecies of the Old Testament related to the day of judgment that, that Peter and the other apostles believed and taught. Prophecies like, like the one we heard from, from Malachi and from Isaiah earlier in the service. 
But these particular prophecies, they're not all that Peter has in mind here. So look at verse 20. Verse 20, he shows us that that he has all of the Old Testament scriptures in mind. So he says, no prophecy of scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation. So the Greek word that he uses there for scripture refers to something that's been written down, something that's been written down. So Peter has in mind not just the oral traditions or or some speech event, but the actual written text of the scriptures. No Jew would have made a a distinction uh, that some parts of scripture were more true than other parts. So when Peter says prophetic word, he he has not only those specific prophecies in mind about the day of the Lord, but he's got the whole Old Testament. And Peter says that what he saw and what he heard at the transfiguration confirms or corroborates what the Old Testament scriptures taught about the future day of of the Lord. That's what Peter means when he says the apostles have the, the prophetic word more strongly confirmed there in verse 19. So he's not saying that the Old Testament prophets are, are more certain or more reliable than what the New Testament apostles saw and heard at the transfiguration, as if we should doubt the reliability of what Peter just gave us in verses 16 and 18. No, rather, he's saying that, that what they saw and they heard at the transfiguration fulfills what we read in our Old Testament. And therefore, it authenticity that word is not coming out of my mouth, it authenticity I can't do it. You know what I'm trying to say. For whatever reason, it won't come out. It makes it real. It validates. Well, go easy. Go with the easy word. Thank you. It validates the apostles' interpretation of it. So in other words, in other words, when Peter watched, when he watched the living word, Jesus Christ, get transfigured on that mountain, it verified the Old Testament written record. It validated the written word, and it validated what Peter said about it. And therefore, therefore, we can trust what the apostles are saying about the return of Christ, because their word was based and is based on God's word. This is why Peter tells us we should pay attention to it like a a lamp, like a light shining in a dark room. So if God himself has confirmed the words of the Old Testament prophets and the teaching of the New Testament apostles through the first coming of Jesus Christ, then the only logical next step for us is to pay attention to their words and not deviate from what they say. Because God's word and the confirmed testimony therewithin illumines us to the truth about the end of history. But for how long? How long do we need to to pay attention to these words? Well, Peter tells us, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. The day there is is clearly the coming day of the Lord that we've been talking about. And the morning star is, it's a reference to Jesus specifically, who, who calls himself the bright morning star in Revelation chapter 22, verse 16. But why does Peter say Jesus is going to rise in our hearts? What's he talking about? Well, he's saying that when Jesus Christ comes, you and I will no longer need the word to light up the way for us. Because on that day, our hearts, our hearts will be fully 
enlightened by the morning star himself. So think of it, think of it like a love letter, like a love letter you receive while you're away from, from your beloved. So before we were married, Stacy and I dated long distance for a year. I didn't tell her I was using this illustration. So surprise. Uh, so we dated, we dated long distance for a year while I was working overseas. Uh, and this was back in the ancient days before we had iPhones and could FaceTime whenever we wanted. So, so we would actually send handwritten letters to one another. And I loved going to the post office and finding a letter with, uh, with her handwriting on it. I treasured those letters while we were apart, while we were separated, reading them over and over and over again, longing for the day when we would be together again. But when I moved back to the States and we got married, you know what happened to those letters? They're in some box now. I still value them, but those letters got laid aside. And I traded them in for the love and the personal contact that we experience every day now. And that's what Peter is saying our experience of Scripture will be like on the day that Christ returns and the light of Christ fully dawns in our hearts. The light of his written word will give way to the greater light of the living word. But until that day, until that day, he says, we are called to pay close attention to his word. And why why should we pay close attention to this particular set of love letters? Well, the answer comes to us in two parts. These love letters, they don't ultimately come from the prophets. These love letters come from God through the Holy Spirit. That's that's where he goes in the final two verses, verses 20 to 21. So here, here we have one of the clearest statements in all the Bible about its inspiration and authority. The Bible is unlike any book ever written. At the most fundamental level, it's both authored by by human beings and by God. The process that we described as inspired, right? You You just said this is God's holy and inspired word. This is what we mean when we when we confess that together. This means that the Bible is the product of of God inspiring and using human authors to write his perfect holy words without any error or deceit in them. That's what Peter's saying in these verses. He's, He's saying the Bible's starting point is with the will of God, the Holy Spirit, not with the will of the human authors. So no other book, no other book ever written can make such a claim. Over 3,000 times, the biblical authors claimed to have received a message from God, meaning God the Holy Spirit inspired, breathed out, originated the words of Scripture through the human writers. This doesn't mean that, that God dictated the Bible to his human authors as if they were, they were some kind of mechanical robots or, or puppets caught up in some kind of divine trance. Rather, they wrote with their own creativity and their own unique styles and, and personalities, using their own vocabulary. That's why when you read the, the emotion of David in the Psalms, it sounds and feels different than the piercing logic of Paul in Romans. And yet, even, even as these human authors wrote the words 
of God, with their own hands, they accomplished exactly what God wanted them to communicate. That's what Peter's getting at when he says that the authors spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Like the wind filling the sails of a ship, the the divine author, God himself, was in full control, full control, guiding and superintending everything so that the human author communicated exactly what God wanted communicated. So Peter, Peter is saying, without any qualification, that the words written by the human authors in Scripture are God's word. It doesn't contain God's word. It doesn't become God's word as we experience it. No, it is God's word. It is God's word objectively outside of our own existential experience of it. What, God, what Scripture says, God says. The book that you have open on your laps right now and we've been talking about for the last 40 minutes is God's word. And because the words of Scripture are the words of God, then that means that all that the biblical authors assert and say must be true. That's the logical implication that Peter is making here. The biblical authors don't lie because God doesn't lie. And therefore, in everything the Bible addresses, it speaks the truth. There's no error in anything that it teaches. All of it, all of it is true. This is what we mean when we call the Bible inerrant. And notice, notice whose authority, this is so critical. Notice whose authority Peter appeals to in these verses to make these claims. He does not appeal to any kind of papal authority. He doesn't appeal to the authority of church tradition. He doesn't even finally appeal to his own authority as an apostle. Where does he go? He appeals entirely to God's authority in the scriptures. So Peter is teaching us right here that God's word, God's word always stands in authority over us. Always stands in authority over us and over his church. We never stand in authority over God's word. We don't have the rights to just make up whatever meaning we want when it comes to the Bible. That, that's why one of the most dangerous questions that we can ever ask when we study the Bible is, what does this mean to me? What does this mean to me? That's a dangerous question because it shoves God's own interpretation of the word to the side. And it makes your experience the lens through which you start to interpret and understand the Bible. But we can get the Bible wrong. But the Bible never gets itself wrong. So a better question, a better question when we study the Bible is, what does this mean to God? Those two words change everything. Not what does this mean to me, but what does this mean to God? What did he mean to communicate in his word to me? Our job when we open our Bibles, it's, it's to understand what God has said. Not what we want him to say. Not what we wish he would have said. Or think he might have said. Or feel like he should have said. 
Our job is to submit to what he has said. We submit to God's word. His word does not submit to us. This is what the false teachers in 2 Peter failed to realize. Because instead of, of submitting to God's own interpretation of his word, they were setting themselves up as their own interpreters. And they twisted the truths of scripture to feed their own passions and desires. And as we'll see in chapter 2, that move proved eternally disastrous for them. So the application for us is simple. This is not a book filled with fake news. We don't gather every Sunday to, to set our minds on myths and legends and fairy tales. The things recorded in this book really happened. God predicted them. He fulfilled them. He inspired the written record of them, and he's interpreted them for us through his apostles. And therefore, we can be confident that what this book says, God says. We can be confident what this book says, God says. There are a million other voices competing for your attention and your affection right now. But only one of those voices comes from God. Only one of those voices out there comes from God. So even when what Scripture teaches about its own inspiration and, and inerrancy, or what it teaches about the return of Christ, or, or sexual ethics, or, or godly living, and all of that seems backwards, and it puts you at odds with your neighbors, your coworkers, your family members, your classmates, the court of popular opinion, the cultural trends of our day, hold fast to what God's word says. Believe it, trust it, submit to it, build your life upon it, order this church around it, immerse yourself in it, follow it, don't deviate from what it says, and don't listen to those who do. Pay attention to it. Pay attention to it. And do not stop until the day dawns and the morning star that this word points us to rises in your hearts. Because when that day comes, brothers and sisters, you'll be glad that you did. Let's take a moment now just to reflect upon God's word to us as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper together.